Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning for me in California, we have Dr. Doug Groteis joining us from, I'm, I'm assuming Denver, is that correct, Doug? Highlands Ranch, yeah. Highlands Denver Ranch. Denver area. Okay, there we go. So Doug uh, is back with us. Uh, of course, you re might remember him from our Good Friday uh, special that we did. He has just recently come out with a book called Fire in the Streets. And the subtitle is How You Can Confidently Respond to Incendiary Cultural Topics. Thanks for being here, Doug. Thank you. Happy to be back. Well, before our internet cuts out, <laughs> let's, yeah. uh, let's get it right into it. Um, this is... Uh, this book covers a lot of ground um, and it's it, it covers a lot of things that people would consider to be sensitive. I think what Harvey Mansfield would call sensitivity. <laughs> and um, so uh, I'm, I'm one of Harvey Grant, Harvey Mansfield Jr.'s uh, grandchildren here over here because my professor started uh, studied under him much like. You studied under Keith Yandel and, uh, you know, JP studied under um, uh, uh, Dallas, under Willard. Dallas Willard and, and, and Craig Blomberg studied under uh, I. Howard Marshall and uh, Don Payne studied under F.F. Bruce, I think, probably maybe uh, or maybe that was Bruce Demarest. Bruce Demarest studied Bruce under F.F. Yeah. Bruce. So. Um, so. Uh, we start with the fires in the streets uh, two years ago in the summer, right. right? Yeah, that's really why I wrote the book, because our cities across the country for a whole summer were literally on fire. Public buildings were being torched, uh, destroyed, police officers killed, citizens killed, 20, 30 people died, $2 billion worth of damage. And this went on and on and on. And it was actually encouraged by Kamala Harris. She said, we're not going to stop. We're not going to stop. And in her typical format, she said, we're not going to stop about six times in 30 seconds. Wow. So we got the message. And then after the protesters, some of them, few of them were arrested. She helped raise money to bail them out. So I knew that this was not an isolated situation, that this kind of rioting, mostly peaceful, by the way, <laughs> was based on an ideology. So as a philosopher, you know, as philosophers, we try to get to the root of social movements. And often there's some kind of philosophy that influences this. So I was being asked to do interviews about the situation. And I don't put this in the book, but I think it will help your viewers to understand. The summer of 2020, my wife, Kathleen, and I were in rural Alaska in a little town called Willow, Alaska, on her homestead, hmm. where we like to spend the summer. And the whole country was I'm jealous. Up. I yeah. just want to say I'm jealous. Sorry. Yeah. Well, my dog had a great time uh, that summer in Alaska. That's awesome. But uh, I really wondered, Kathleen and I wondered if we should go back to Denver, because nothing was blowing up in rural Alaska. I mean, you have to dodge bears and mosquitoes, but we didn't have people torching City Hall. There, was, there were a few peaceful protests in Anchorage, I believe. 
But I called up some of my friends in Denver and I said, do you think it's safe to go back to Denver? Because I could have taught my classes for Denver Seminary online, but we decided to go back. And I thought what I need to do as a writer and as a philosopher is help people understand the roots of all this. And the roots really go back to Marxism. And that's not just a ad hominem attack. You know, the people we don't like on the left are Marxists, Marxists are evil. No, I document this, that the leaders of Black Lives Matter claim to be trained Marxists. And you think, why do they say trained? You know, are they untrained Marxists? Right. What that means is we are activists. We are revolutionaries. We want to burn down the system. So it's all based on a conflict account of society and history. For Marx, the conflict was between the owners and the workers. The owners, by virtue of having private property and controlling the means of production, exploit the workers. And eventually the workers who have been alienated from the fruit of their labor will revolt and overthrow, overturn the civil government create something called the dictatorship of the proletariat. And eventually the state, as Engels put it famously and stupidly, will wither away. There'll be no need for a state because there'll be no class antagonisms, no profit, no private property, no division of labor. Now, of course, this has never happened anywhere. And even where there have been Marxist revolutions, let's say 1917 in Russia, 1949 in China, They have not been groundswell movements from the proletariat. They've been engineered by upper class intellectuals, essentially, whether that's uh, Lenin or Mao Zedong or go to Cambodia, Pol Pot. Um, He was trained in French universities to be a good Marxist. And Pol Pot really is the king of monsters, at least in terms of percentages. He probably had 25 to 30% of his population killed, his own people killed by the state. Why is that? Well, they were counter-revolutionaries. That is, they didn't like his program. Maybe they wanted to have their own farms. Maybe they wanted to have a typical family. You can't do that with Marxism. Everything has to be destroyed and rebuilt from the ground up. So what we're seeing with the riots is a philosophy, not pure Marxism or original Marxism, but what is called critical race theory. And the story of that in a nutshell is that Marxists in the 20s and 30s in Germany, the Frankfurt School realized that uh, Marx's predictions had not come true. And especially in America and in Western Europe, all of Europe really, the workers were fairly happy with their lot. Uh, They were not foaming at the mouth to sweep away and render render impossible the bourgeois, as the Communist Manifesto said. So people like Herbert Marcuse, Max Horkheimer, Eric Fromm and others said, people are still oppressed. They just don't know how oppressed they are because they have certain amenities and they're working and so on. But we have to show them that they are more oppressed than they think. And this oppression is not merely economic, it's cultural, it's related to sex and gender also. 
So especially Herbert Marcuse said, uh, we're not gonna overthrow the basic ideas of Marxism, even though his predictions failed and his ideas were unchristian, illogical from the beginning. But let's bring into the revolutionary camp, people of color, sexual minorities, they are all in one way or another repressed by the established society. And Herbert Marcuse was the leading philosopher of what was called the new left in the 1960s in the United States. The saying, make love, not war, is pretty much Marcuse. So he thought people in the US were sexually repressed because of Judeo-Christian values. They were economically oppressed. The technological system was blinding them to the systematic nature of their oppression. So that was called critical theory. And then along the way, the emphasis of race became so strong that the term critical race theory was applied uh, through people like the legal scholar, Professor Derek Bell, who was an influence on Barack Obama and people like Kimberly, Kimberly Crenshaw and others. And you have people today like Ibrahim X. Kendi and uh, several others who are saying that the tension is between the white male oppressors against people of color. And the way you can gauge how oppressed you are is whether or not you're part of a minority. So if you're black, if you're a woman, if you're a lesbian, uh, let's add disabled, then you're fourfold oppressed. This is called intersectionality. And this grid does all the thinking for you in terms of justice and political theory. So check off the boxes. Okay, I'm white, I'm male, I'm heterosexual, I'm Christian. Well, then I am very much an oppressor, period, just because of these categories that I belong to. And so if someone is <clears throat> African-American, Hispanic, uh, maybe bisexual, trans, whatever, some other things, then they are oppressed. And so it's an intrinsically unjust system because of that. And critical race theory people don't think the United States has made progress on race relations. Derek Bell said the civil rights movement really did not help African-Americans. He said that whites only concede anything to blacks when it helps them, the whites. This is called this interest convergence theory, which is wildly implausible. Uh, think of all the union troop losses in the Civil War. What was that, about 350,000? Think of the many whites that made common cause with blacks in the South in the civil rights movement. Uh, some of them thrown into jail, some were killed. So the idea is that American society is systemically toxic with racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia. So our founding ideals are a fraud. Slave owners wrote the founding documents. So they're hypocritical. We have nothing good to build on. So I start the book by quoting a Black Lives Matter activist named Hawk Newsom. And he says, if we don't get what we want, we're going to burn everything down. 
And he said, you could take that literally, you could take that figuratively. Well, I think we saw in the summer of 2020, which, which it was, and it was literally. What, so, how long did it take you in the summer of 2020 to connect this with Marxism? Instantly. <laughs> okay. I've been around for a long time. And I've been so you had background knowledge. Yeah, I've been an anti-communist from the early 80s. So I know what Marxism was. Yeah. As a young man, I was attracted to it for a few years. And in the early 80s, I began to read more broadly, read people like William F. Buckley and R.J. Rushdoony and Richard John Newhouse and the great Fred Schwartz, who led the Christian anti-communism crusade for decade after decade. Well, he so said got, you could. He could. Yeah. He said you could trust the communists. Yeah, you can trust the communists to be communists. <laughs> yeah. So, got to quote the whole trust, uh, the whole title. <laughs> yeah, I know it's a classic book. In fact, I, I lost my copy. Book, I got to get it again. You do. Yeah, I've got my original. Oh, jealous. He was. He was a terrific cold warrior in the best sense of the term. Yeah. And he educated Ronald Reagan on the realities of Marxist Leninism. And Reagan kept those principles throughout his political career and his two terms as president. And that's why he had the backbone. Uh, I won't appeal to another part of the male body. as, as <laughs> okay. He had the backbone and the fortitude to stand up against communism because he knew what it was. Right. You cannot trust them to honor their treaties. You cannot trust them to reduce their arms. You cannot trust them to stop being territorial. And he really owed his knowledge of communism to Fred Schwartz. I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. He went to one of his seminars back, I think in the 1950s or 60s. Yeah, oh, was that right? Oh, wow. So there's the power of ideas, power yeah, of good yeah. ideas. Uh, Fred Schwartz, free market, American founding principles and the power of bad and murderous <clears throat> and horrendous ideas. That is anything connected to Marxism. Well, I was exposed to that book uh, when I was a teenager and I was horrified. And I was, I was deeply troubled. Hmm. Um, and I don't, and other books as well. And I, I think, um, uh, like you, I instantly, uh, interpreted the, the, uh, the events, uh, those events of 2020 with, with, uh, my background knowledge. Um, yeah. And so your book, in some respect is is leveling people up to get that background knowledge that you had that you were able to see because some people that i was interacting with in 2020 they couldn't see what i took myself to be able to see very quickly uh is that part of your reason for the book it is yep. yes uh the first chapter of the book after the preface in the introduction is Section one, how the blaze got started, fire in the mind of Karl Marx and his followers. So I explain it. Now, of yeah, course, right. you've got a lot of other things happening. The precipitating event yeah, sure. was the George Floyd killing that everybody. That's saw. right. Yeah, we got to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. But you see, that was put into a storyline. And that is right. America right. is systemically, institutionally racist. White yeah. cops are killing black men all over the place indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. And we have to stop this. And we've gotten to the point where we have to go to the streets, burn things down to stop it. But see, this is all based on 
a neo-Marxist account of race and society and power structures. And it's essentially false. Now I'm not saying uh, the killing of George Floyd was right or that Derek Chauvin was innocent, nothing like that. I do go into some of the background of this in the book that many people don't understand. But the idea is that critical race theory thinks in terms of group identification. So this is basically identity politics on super steroids. Right. So all we need to know is that George Floyd was black, he was unarmed, and a white police officer was applying the compliance hold when he died. That's all we need to know. That is a microcosm of the macrocosm of systemic racism. And since America views things through images and feelings more than history and logic, that was it. That was the precipitating event that literally sent the whole society on fire. And you combine that with a lot of what Shelby Steele calls white guilt. And people are taking to the streets. People are just throwing tens of millions of dollars at a corrupt and revolutionary organization called Black Lives Matter. And recently we found how corrupt they are, how they've used the money that has been contributed to them for multiple homes. They didn't even account for the money. I think a lot of white liberals just thought, gee, this is somehow all our fault for being whites and being in America. So we will self atone, always a bad idea. We will atone for our own sins by throwing money at this organization. And the organization is neo-Marxist. It is revolutionary. It's against the American family. It's against Judeo-Christian perspectives on life. So I'm trying to give people a deeper, yeah. more well-informed understanding of the larger philosophical and historical situation. Right. And you, you're careful and as you go through to make methodological points when you talk about what a narrative is, when you talk about what ideology is, right. um, when you say uh, multiple times that when we assess uh, something, we, we have to recognize we have limited knowledge. We're getting a very small snippet of something. There's a background. There's a background facts that we might not know. We need to attend to the details of that incident and and seek and be uh, you know humble um in our approach to these things be curious right uh, a lot of a lot of a uh, you know intellectual virtue that you're trying to um not signal but but teach um and it seems like a lot of if, if people were a little bit more intellectually virtuous uh would have been a much more peaceful summer i think um because uh i i didn't see a lot of curiosity uh about what happened and what it means because right. you have really two things you have what happened and you have what it means right exactly. and that's the odd thing is is even if you take the most egregious fact pattern there e even if what happened is what what's claimed to be in that case it does what what it means what people were saying it meant doesn't, doesn't follow it doesn't follow that that uh it's happening all over the place and it, it certainly doesn't follow that that uh we need to hire 87,000 more irs agents with guns i mean because the whole idea of the police state I mean, the whole idea of qualified immunity, the whole idea that 
that uh, the government has your best interests in mind. I mean, the guy was an agent of the government. Um, so anyway, those are some of the things that I'm thinking of. Of course, you're talking about race. You're, you know, people say the word identity. But I think they mean description. Mm-hmm. I think they mean appearance. And that's a little that's a little bit philosophical, but I think that's where we get into some of the issues. Now you talk about identity. Right. Right. Well, that's um, key. I have a chapter on yeah. a biblical view of um, identity, especially right, with right, respect right. to race. But this relates also certainly to sexual identity. But biblically, there's there's one God, there's one human race, yeah. and two genders. So there really aren't many races. There are many ethnicities. There are many histories of particular peoples. And we use language right. like Hispanic, Black, right. Asian, white, whatever it is. But at the most fundamental and foundational level, every human being is a member of the same human race. Right. And we are all made in the image and likeness of God. That's an either or. If you're a human, you're made in the image and likeness of God, whether you're uh, a two-day-old embryo or whether you're a, a black man who's 40 years old or a white woman who's 12 years old. So that is a an axiom of biblical ethics. And that transcends racial identity, gender identity, right? That transcends how you identify yourself. Right. It's who God identifies you as in terms of your objective reality, right? The right. facts of the matter. Now, my one of my key problems with critical race theory is that it says that race and how you identify sexually is the most important thing about you. Now, we need to assess society in terms of groupings, certainly, excuse me. So for example, as a group, the average age for Japanese Americans is 51. And the average age for black Americans is I think about uh, 33. All right, so that tells us something sociologically and also tells us something economically, right? So usually if you're in your fifties, you've made more money and you have a better income than if you're in your thirties. Just bracket out race, just age is a significant factor here. People like Thomas Sowell talk about these features. So yeah, you talk about you you mentioned Sowell quite a bit, and the book is dedicated yeah, to him. It is. Yeah, I do. I've been reading Thomas Sowell, the great African American economist, literally for 40 years. And I found his insights hold up. And he just keeps publishing his last book, came out two years ago when he was 90. Uh, he's probably working on another one right now. Hmm. So I dedicated the book to him. I've never met him, but his thinking, he's not a Christian to my knowledge, but his thinking about history and economics is so incisive and really yeah. cuts through so much of the garbage we hear from critical race theory people about systemic oppression and uh, thinking black and thinking white and all these things that I wanted to dedicate the book to him, although I certainly supply the biblical worldview that I, that I deal with in the book. Yeah. Yeah. When did you first uh, read uh, Thomas Sowell? 
Well, I heard about him through the influence of a Christian economist named Gary North, who just passed away recently at age 80. Okay. And uh, Thomas Sowell was Gary North's favorite economist. So I liked Gary North. What <clears throat> what decade was this? How old were you? Uh, I say it was in the early 80s. Okay. So I was in my early 20s. Uh, does that work out right? <laughs> yeah. Or uh, early. You were, in your, you were in your 20s. Yeah, I was yeah. in my 20s. Okay. So I think the first books I read were uh, The Politics of Economics and Race and then Civil Rights. I think it might have just been called Civil Rights. I read both of those, I think, in the early 80s. And I went on to read uh, many, many of his books. I mean, over here, I've got a big chunk of his books. And then somewhere else in the basement is another big chunk of the books. So shows you how organized I am. However, are you the in the basement, basement right now? I'm in the bunker. I'm in the philosophy bunker. Yeah. <laughs> my dog, Sonny, right here. Uh, this is where I do all my writing. <laughs> so I was very happy to write a book where I could apply Thomas Sowell's wisdom mm. very broadly to a pertinent social issue yeah. and do so from a, a confessedly Christian viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like a worthy goal to me. <laughs> Yeah, Tom uh, Soul is a very private man, and it's it's almost impossible to get a hold of him. I think it. I, I've tried to get a hold of him myself for this podcast, and I, you know, it it's it's virtually impossible unless you unless you know somebody that can call him and he'll pick up. Yeah, and uh, the older he gets, I think it's just going to be harder, but I'm so glad that you're honoring Thomas Sowell. I remember reading Thomas Sowell when I was uh, probably in high school is when I first remember reading him. I remember he was, he had a syndicated column in the newspaper right. and I read the newspaper when I was in high school. Yeah, great column. Yeah. yeah he so, just stopped writing that. I think five or six years ago, he wrote it. Yeah. Eighties. Yeah. Very powerful. And I remember, cause you had a snapshot of him. He had, you, you could see what he looked like and he was black. So, you know, uh, let's maybe get into racism. How do you define racism? What's the problem with racism? <laughs> right. Well, the problem is you're not viewing people. Questions I, I like to, sorry. I, I like to ask my students what racism is and, and what's the problem with it. Yeah. It's a good idea. Thinking. Yeah. yeah like, well, I guess we should start really with what is it? I think it's, prejudging someone especially negatively according to their race and not considering them as an irreducible center of value because they're made in god's image and likeness and then deducing things about them as you get to know them or as you gain information about the particular person now you can talk about tendencies by virtue of race i already gave you average right. age of japanese americans in relation to African-Americans, and I think the average age of whites is about 43 or 44. But if you start out in an interaction with someone and say, well, that person's Hispanic, that person is black, that person's white, therefore I know all these things about them. And you think critically about them, I mean negatively about them, Okay, uh, that's wrong. Or if you say, well, all Hispanics, all Asians, all Hispanics are like this. Okay, that's putting race first and not putting the individual before the face of God first. So that's wrong. That is a 
incorrect pre-judgment, so prejudice, all right? And that should be avoided uh, on every level. So it, I think racism, I don't really develop this in the book too much, but I think anyone of any ethnicity could be racist, uh, any background, blacks against whites, whites against blacks, Hispanics against blacks, African, Africans against African-Americans, vice versa. <laughs> yeah. You know, that happens. Sure. That's actually an issue in some places too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we should avoid that entirely, but not think, and this is where I rely on Thomas Sowell so much, that discrepancies of social achievement are necessarily the product of racism. Right. They may or may not be. Obviously, this was the case under slavery, Jim Crow, the redlining problem with real estate in the United States. But you look at this today after the civil rights movement and after having an African-American president for two terms and so many African-American police chiefs, newscasters, etc. And the idea, especially with Ibrahim X. Kendi, who's got to be probably the most overrated social critic we have. But <laughs> Kendi says, all right, blacks and whites are equal, but they're discrepant outcomes for income, for professional development, et cetera. Okay, racism explains it. <laughs> it's a very simple equation and it's very wrong. Yeah. You know, the guy's a social scientist. He has a PhD in history. I don't know how that happened because society is a lot more complicated and messy than that. Average age contributes to the situation. Where you live contributes. Thomas Sowell points out that around the world, people groups that live in mountainous regions tend to have more problems in life with education, family structure, addiction. Think of Appalachia. Well, Appalachia is largely white. You have multi-generational welfare dependency, drug addiction. And one of my simple refutations of critical race theory is if you say, well, all whites are oppressors and all people of color are oppressed, then you have to say that a third generation welfare drug addict at white in Appalachia is privileged because he's white and he's actually somehow oppressing black people, yellow right. people, red people. Right. This doesn't make sense. This is a reductio ad absurdum of the position. Right, to right, right. I think it's important uh, to say if, if you've if you've stayed with this uh, interview for for this long that the purpose of this this interview at least from my perspective uh, might be different than the purpose that doug has for the interview the purpose that i have from the interview doug doug wants to sell books that's, that's right that's a good that's a good reason that's a good not, reason. not my pillow but my book <laughs> yeah there you go uh yeah. and you know it's 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 worth buying and owning my, the purpose I have is to to distinguish this interview from other interviews, because otherwise, why would you pick this interview from another interview sure. uh, from a business perspective? But from from a deeper perspective, though, which is why I'm doing what I'm doing is it's to to come at this in a fresh way as a complement to reading the book. It's not a substitute for reading the book. And I think a lot of interviews are approached almost it's almost as if it's a substitute you don't need to even read the book anymore and i think a lot of people do that 
I think yeah. they re- listen to something and they think, oh, okay, well, now that I've listened to it, I don't need to read the book. I would say that the book prompts reflection on all sorts of issues. One of the key issues is the definition of racism. The definition of racism is is important to get down. I'm not sure there is one definition. It seems to be kind of an ambiguous uh, mm-hmm. concept because on the one hand, it, it could be uh, a way you treat somebody, like like you were saying, a way that you approach treating an individual. Uh, maybe it's a habit that you have. Um, and it might very well be prejudice uh, in terms of that individual, but it's, it's such a, it's, there's so many moving parts here because I think a lot of people don't pay sufficient attention to post-judice versus prejudice. And I think a lot of what explains the way we act in the world is really post-judice, meaning we have experience that we're bringing to it. Um, and we're doing what we can. It might not be the best we can, but we're, we're, uh, oftentimes going by experience. Right. And now that doesn't mean, (laughs) okay. It could mean you're going by experience from that person. Could be that you have background knowledge of that person and you don't like that person. (laughs) <laughs> because sure. of your because of your experience yeah. um it, it could be that you have a background experience of a group of people and you don't like them and that's one meaning of racism that people tend to say I, the 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 definition i think is most helpful is it's a belief uh, an ism is a belief like feminism marxism it's a belief it's an explanation it's attempt to explain data that you have in other words, it's an attempt to um, say the reason for the disparities that we see is because one race is inherently superior to another race or other races. That's how I think of as racism in the most helpful sense. I agree with that. Yeah. Oh, okay. I treat that um, in some detail in the book and give more. Yeah. Let's do it. But what I reject is the idea that America today is systemically racist against people of color. Right. Right. So much so that we need an equity agenda from the top down where you look at your place of work and you say, okay, we need 13% black. We need 50% female. All right, let's meet the quotas here where you leave out merit, you leave out experience. Yeah. And I am an unabashed advocate of meritocracy, level playing field, give people equal opportunities as much as you can in a fallen world, but not ensure proportional outcomes through the long uh, and oily muscled (laughs) arm of the state. I'm a conservative. I want a limited state. The state does some things well and does other things very badly in terms of policing, military, enforcing contracts, keeping law and order, that's really what we need the state for. Writing every wrong, controlling people's thoughts and speech, that's not what the state should do. Yeah. Well, I think that's why Marxists like this, because that's what they want to do. 
They yeah. like the state. And as Christians, we, of course, do not have that knee-jerk reaction that the state is the best we have. Uh, we we yeah. always judge the state and the government from metaphysical standard that is much more transcendent. Well, it is transcendent. Um, well, one way to put it, you know, I mentioned Gary North a while ago. Gary North's first book was called, uh, oh, what was it? I think it was called Marx's Religion of Revolution. Marx's Religion of Revolution. I think it came out in 1968. And he saw this in religious categories, and rightly so. He said Marxism is attempting to regenerate society through revolution. It's not reform society according to transcendent principles. God is the source of the good. Human beings are created in his image and likeness. Right. Human beings are fallen, so we will find no utopia on earth. It was right. the right. promise of regenerating people through revolution. And in the Soviet Union, you had this idea that came out of Lenin, I believe, that the Marxist revolution would bring about what was called the new man, mm -hmm. a new category of human being who basically has all the Christian virtues without God, <laughs> who <laughs> is kind and not acquisitive, not exploitative. And this yeah. will come about through the agency of violent revolution, because the mm -hmm. idea is the structure of society is the problem, not individuals. Right. As Christians, right. we say both. If right. there are unjust structures this comes out of unjust people yeah but the essential marxist vision is it's the structure so we can change the structures get rid of private property get rid of the profit motive and so on and make sure we totally control education so everybody thinks the way they should then yeah. we will have a significantly better society but you can't leave it to individuals churches small organizations because they're just uh, flotsam and jetsam floating around. We've got to congeal it, combine yeah. it. The state is a unifying center of reality. And I remember yeah. some years ago, I was watching, I don't know why, but I was watching part of the Democratic National Convention on television. And they had a little video uh, promoting the democratic understanding. And it was looking at different people uh, families with children playing, people walking their dogs, people working. And it said, what is the thing that really binds us together as Americans? It's the oh. state. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I went, I no, know what you're talking about. Oh, no, maybe yeah. you saw that one. It was painful. Yeah, it was painful. No, it's American ideals. Ultimately, it's God. He created yeah. us his image and likeness and put us on this planet. Right. To serve him and love each other. It's not the state. Mm. God help us. I mean, when the state claims to be God, then God help us. The real God help us. <laughs> when I interact with my students about race and racism and stuff like that, um, there's so much confusion, Doug, on the campuses. <clears throat> right. um, and the confusion, I think, is manifest in just... Um, well not thinking very carefully about it first of all right. and, and not slowing right. down and there's a tremendous uh desire to fit in on the part of students with a certain way of talking and i think 
fitting in with a certain way of talking almost it's almost like a mental block for fresh thought and one of the ways this goes is anything can be racist even stuff that's not racist (laughs) so that's why i'm so key keen on getting getting clearer about that thing is is uh, what i like to do is tell stories about going to the south and you know you have to be able to explain what you see you know if you can't explain that uh the the historical understanding of the from the jim crow south and the slavery and and mainly in the south i think but let's just focus on the south okay Mm -hmm. is is that um for a lot of people the the blacks were um metaphysically inferior right now i don't i i wouldn't attribute that to everybody down there but but i think here's here's the thing i can i compare it to um how i feel about dogs okay now i love dogs now this is where i'm getting at is that dog right here so watch your yeah 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 yeah. well i'm here (laughs) <laughs> but, but my point is, is I'm trying to get my students to say that, that racism doesn't imply hatred at all. It, and, and you can't understand the polite culture of the South otherwise. I mean, it might, it might imply hatred. It might imply anger. But it could be just a really polite division <laughs> in society, just like we have with dogs. Now, if a dog transgresses some boundary the reaction is swift right and sure mm-hmm. and you can't lecture me out of it because i have a belief in my mind that look dogs are lower than humans are right i mean i love dogs it doesn't mean i don't like dogs i there are a place for dogs <laughs> you know and dogs need to be cared for i feel bad if i saw a dog suffering i would feel bad and I would want to help that dog. And I think that's how a lot of whites thought about blacks. And I don't that think you can understand. Been, I don't yeah. think you can understand American history otherwise. I don't think you can understand the South, and and uh, and just the way things were. And uh, you know, getting people to see that if someone's angry at somebody, it doesn't mean they're racist. And if somebody is nice to somebody, it doesn't mean they're not racist. It has nothing to do. It's a belief. You got to get to the belief. So that's why I loved when you went to the back of the book, you went to atheism and origin issues, like, you know, getting into this, like, okay, but a lot of this has to do with what are the origins of the races, right? (laughs) You know, what are, and when we talk about race, we mean the appearances, you know, like, uh, so when people that one of the ways people talk that people don't question is people of color, that term people of color. Well, what do you mean by color? What do you, what do you mean by that? White's it, usually, <laughs> usually you only mean like brown or tan, yeah. but they don't pink say is that. A color. We're, we're pink, you know? Yeah. It's yeah just, I use that in the way book, of just, talking. Yeah. Yeah. I used it in the book just as an organizing principle. Yeah. I, I know that's how you were using, but I'm yeah. talking about my students, you know, what, how do you know what somebody's race is? Well, then they, they say you, well, you ask them, they have to identify. 
And that's how the HR departments are. When you get hired, they ask you, Yeah, <laughs> they don't. And so I, I remember talking to one HR department. I was, I had been teaching there for several years at Loyola Marymount university in Los Angeles. And I got called into the HR department just randomly, apparently to fill out a form that they never had me fill out. And they said, would you, would you please fill out this form? And it was all self identification, self description of gender and race. And I said, <laughs> you know, I, I, I like to get people to think, cause I'm, I'm a teacher at heart, you know, and I, you know, sometimes that can be misinterpreted. Like, I don't, I don't mean to be a troublemaker, but you know, Socrates was the same way that he was interpreted as a, a troublemaker when I think he was just trying to teach. But I, I said, how am I supposed to fill this out? I, I think the assumption is that I have some kind of knowledge about this that, for example, you don't have. I said, well, why don't you just fill it out now that you've seen me? Oh, we're not allowed to do that. I said, well, why not? I'm going to use the same evidence that you're going to use. I'm going to go look at myself in the mirror, but that's what you can see right now. So why can't you fill it out? There's a cultural thing that you can't even explain that was, that was blocking that. And I don't know if it's a legal thing or a fear of some, it's something, it was complex and you couldn't even articulate it. So I, I let it drop and I didn't fill it out. <laughs> I don't think they were very happy about that, but I, I mean, just, it just seems odd that we have to fill these descriptions out, but they're partial descriptions. In other words, you're not asking me what my favorite music is. And then the selections are jazz and then, and then even more detail. Okay. Which jazz, you know, <laughs> that's not on the HR form. Well, why are these more important than these other things? So there's all sorts of moving targets here and it's not clear. Am I getting it in trouble? Is this so you can control me some way is this I don't, it's it's not clear what's going on and i think that filters down to the classroom and i think it filters filters down to students and there's all this confusion and so you go back to george floyd and the, the police officer how do you know george floyd was black how do you know the police officer was white you didn't ask them mm -hmm. <laughs> you took it to be that you knew without asking them so you got two conflicting things. I know what somebody's race is without asking them. I, I only know when I ask them and it can't be that both of those are right. When, when a, a crime has occurred, the police ask for a description of the person from the witness, right? Well, yeah, it's taken to be that these are categories that exist and you just you can latch onto them by describing them. So there's all sorts of confusion about race and identity and even gender. And now I think well, gender is a huge issue now. So I'm waiting for your book on gender. Doug. Uh, I wonder, I've been doing a lot of writing and research on this. Uh, maybe we could do a show on, I wouldn't even be hawking a book because I haven't written a book on this. I've written <laughs> well, you should. <laughs> well, I don't know. I've got maybe so we'll see. I'm, but even the terms person. black, I mean, there, I've never seen a black person. I've seen a brown person. I've never seen a black person. Yeah. I've seen, I've never seen a white person. I've seen someone that's much lighter skinned, 
but I've never seen someone that's pure white. I usually hold a piece of paper up to my face and ask if you can mm -hmm. see the difference. And everybody can see the difference between the white piece of paper and my skin. Yeah. So it's, and with, you get into interracial marriage. This is only going to become more interesting because interracial marriage, as you point out in the book, is is what, five times what it used to be? Six times? Much more common now. Yeah, and I think and that's so people are having sign. kids. People are having that's kids. What race is the kid? How is the kid supposed to understand that? Say half black. Well, what does that mean? I don't even know what half black means. You know, there's well, no American there's no history, crayon there's, that says half black. Yeah, right. In American history, there's something called the one drop rule. So right. even if you're That's one right. fourth, one eighth African American, you're considered African American, and then you are plugged into all the quotas and everything else. Well, that assumes that color is a matter of blood. Yeah, That's right. you have appearances versus something that's passed down. It's it's very confusing to me. Well, let me tell you a little anecdote about this, about identification. Um, I've applied for a number of job positions over the years, and often there'll be an affirmative action statement. And they usually say, you don't have to fill this out. I think sometimes they say you do need to fill it out. But one of the categories is Native Alaskan. And by that, they mean Eskimo, Aleut, Clinket, uh, First Nation person, we now say. Well, I was born in Alaska in 1957, two years before I became a state. So I'm a native Alaskan. <laughs> so I was so tempted. To, I think I did check it once just to see if anything might happen. Of course, then they look at me and say, oh, well, you're not a native Alaskan. Meaning, well, then why are you asking me? Why don't you just fill yeah, it out for me? Right, you fill it out for me. Yeah. Well, I think our sense of identity is profoundly distorted. And you're pointing this out. Why can't we just talk about all men are created equal and have certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Deeper, all human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. Mm -hmm. So let's treat everyone with respect. Let's attempt to follow the Ten Commandments and let's try to uh, decolorize society in a sense. Yeah. In a sense, yeah. More like the Martin Luther King vision than the critical race theory vision. Well, in the eyes of the law, right? I mean, right. in terms yeah. of dealing with individuals and even some groups like black churches, for example, so-called black churches, mm -hmm. I think it's hard to, you know, I, I just take it as it comes. I, 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 I just, you know, I try to deal with the world as I see it and try to pay careful attention to my, what I believe and what do I assume? Maybe my assumptions aren't really well-founded and that happens all the time for me. I'm constantly wondering if I really have things right now, not about everything, but I think it's helpful to do it um, every so often about at least some things. Sure. And um, now how do you feel about um, if someone's a, uh, gotten this far in the interview and they are thinking they want to buy this book how do you feel about america and um what do you think that the that people get wrong about america what do you think they get right about america kind well that's a very significant that part of my book and the burden of writing it section two is called burning it all down question mark Chapter three, what is America and should we burn it? Chapter four, America and systemic racism. The 
critical race theory people think that America is intrinsically and inexorably racist. This is the thesis of the 1619 Project that America is based on slavery. Without slavery, there's no America. Our founders were flaming hypocrites yeah. because Jefferson owned slaves, et cetera, slaves, et cetera, et cetera. Now, my view is right. the view of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King that the founding ideals of America are magnificent. The founders did not always live up to them, but it's possible to write better than you live. So my idea- yes, that's a key yeah, my, issue. It, right. Uh, Martin Luther King said the Declaration of Independence is something we should live up to as Americans. It's not a fraud. He, in fact, talked about the magnificent documents of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Now, critical race theory people say they're not magnificent. They're the product of white supremacy. And they have to be destroyed, essentially. We have to start over again. We need to burn everything down, start over again with uh, essentially a Marxist understanding of society. So my view is that America in its principles, in its foundation is very good. And it also is a system politically that allows for self-reform. You have the amendment process in the constitution. It is not something that is so fundamentally bad that it has to be fundamentally transformed to use Barack Obama's language. No, we need to reform it according to the constitutive principles. So let me just give you one example of misinformation, maybe even disinformation. And that is the three-fifths clause in the Constitution. Constitution says that it never uses the word Negro, Black, or slave, but it refers to those who were enslaved in the South. And it says that they will count as three-fifths of a person with respect to congressional representation, all right? Now, this was a compromise between the Northern states and the, the Southern states to get a constitution, because if they didn't hammer out some kind of compromise, and it's a sad compromise, then you would have had a nation of the North and a nation of the South, one free, one slave, to oversimplify a little bit. So this was a compromise. And actually the North got the better part of the deal because the North wanted to restrict the voting power in Congress of the South by counting enslaved people as three-fifths. Now the South is not gonna let them vote anyway. So they wanted to restrict the representational power of the South right. by counting the slaves as three-fifths. So it was like a ticking time bomb that eventually sure. detonated into the Civil War. Yeah and into the abolition of slavery. How many times have you heard the American constitution is fundamentally corrupt, racist, white supremacist because it only counts blacks as three fifths of a person? You know, what excrement, you know, pick your excrement, bovine, equine, whatever. <laughs> it is completely wrong. I've even read conservative writers that make this kind of claim. Oh man. So if, if I do anything in this book, I've got about four pages trying to explain that. You know, let's do a little history won't hurt you, won't kill you. Let's look at some history and see what this really means, what happened, why it happened. And moreover, that is not part of the of our ethos of the United States anymore. That's not part of our founding right. anymore. It's gone. 
You know, we have the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. That's right. That come out of, um, you pulling that up there? Well, I'm pulling up the Fifth Amendment as you finish your thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, my basic thesis is that America is fundamentally good, not perfect. It's strong. It's not without defect. But I like what Ken Hamblin said years ago as a black conservative author. He said, find a better country. Uh, find a better country. Why is it that people want to come to America and they're not banging down the doors of China or North Korea? Right. Why is this? Why is it? At the Tiananmen Square protests in 1989 in China, they were holding up the American flag and they made a replica of the Statue of Liberty. It's because yeah. America is a symbol of freedom and opportunity, and rightly so. Rightly so. So the Chinese but, get the Chinese dissidents got something about America right. <laughs> they did. Yeah, that's right. Well, I bring it up the Fifth Amendment for those who are watching on YouTube. You can obviously see it and you don't need me to tell you what this is. Uh, those listening on Apple iTunes and uh, Spotify, Stitcher, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'll just narrate verbally what I'm seeing here. No person, blah, 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 shall be deprived of life, liberty or property without due process of law. That is a 1791, 1791. The word is person. It's not citizen, mm. it's person. The word yeah. slave never appears in the Constitution. Right. The, there's three times slaves are referred to, and each time the term is person. Each right. time. Mm -hmm. So just yeah, think about it. Just think about it. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property, no person mm -hmm. without due process of law. Mm -hmm. I mean, the seeds are planted there for a big, big problem. Right? Why? Right. Why is it that you thought think that the the North had this uh, before the South did? I mean, why? I mean, that's a geographical yeah yeah boundary. So, what are they just smarter up in the North, or oh. what's what's going well. on with that? Are they... I don't know that I'm the best person to ask about that. I, certainly the plantation system was built around slavery. Uh, yeah, and that was, that's right. I think, unique to the South. That's right. Beyond that, uh, it shook down that way for a number of different reasons. But yeah, yeah. the essential issue is moral. Uh, right. And what is a more moral form of civil government is one that allows slavery or one that doesn't. We answer that question. Sure. Sadly, you know, it took a long time, but we answered it. And moreover, yeah. you know, as I think it's uh, Thomas Sowell says, uh, what's one of the things remarkable about America is not that it had slavery, but that it got rid of it. Yes, absolutely. And slavery is not anything uniquely to white or to America. Yeah. Slavery comes out of the fall. The worst slave traders of all were the Muslim Arabs. The Arab mm -hmm. slave trade was horrible. And affected millions and millions of people. Thomas Sowell goes into this as well. Yeah, white yeah. slavery is terrible. Chattel slavery is terrible, but it's not a uniquely white sin pattern yeah. by any means. It affects all the races. And in fact, slavery is not primarily based on race. It's based on opportunity. Right. There were blacks in the United States who owned black slaves. Right. Right. There were blacks in Africa who sold slaves to white slave owners. 
Mm-hmm. So slavery is a sin wherever it occurs, right? But it's nothing uniquely white by any means. So let's just say yeah. all people are made in God's image. All people are sinful. Slavery is an institution that comes out of the fall and it's wrong. And now let's work for a more fair and equitable, not equitable. I don't like that word anymore. Let's work <laughs> for a fair and just society where we really believe that all men are created equal and have certainly the reason I bring up the North versus the South is because I think you really do have to have an explanation for that. That's plausible because uh, as you point out in the book, and this is another issue that we should get into at some point, but uh, we don't have to do it in this interview. We can come back, have you come back, but um, the issue of America, I noticed you use that term more than you use the United States. You use the term America over and over again. And you'd even quote like Thomas, you know, Cotton Mather, you know, 100 years before the United States, over 100 years before the United States. Yeah. And and I, I it's sometimes it's not clear exactly. What's American and what's what's in terms of the United States, which is a distinct thing yeah. from from England and. um um, and there's a there's a few errors in the book too. I probably should point out to you, and the and the listeners. But uh, well, I'll get to that in a second. But well, I know I the, know one mistake is that I overstated the number of Union deaths in the Civil War. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Someone else found that. I that was one. I, that was I one took I the on. total, and I yeah. and I said it was Union. So right, 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 right. There's a second printing. We will correct that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a few other things. There's a date of Washington's letter. Um, um, the date of George Floyd, um, uh, 15th Amendment versus 14th Amendment. We'll get to that. I have them written down. Send me an email. Okay. Well, I I might put them on the podcast here. I might put it on there. Just just really quickly, quickly go through here and say that there's a teaching about human nature here with North versus the South that I think we need to get on here is It's not that the North are inherently better people. They're the same people. (laughs) That's what cotton, you know, we, the people of the United States, we, the people, they're the same people. It's the, it's the English heritage that it's the British heritage. It's the same. That's what they mean by people. It's the, it's that, it's that religion as the Federalist Papers say, it's the language, it's the culture. And yes, it was distinct from Africa. Yes, that's true. And so there's there's a real issue you got to get to on, on terms of the issue of the people. Um, now, the Africans that were enslaved and had kids and became African-Americans, you might say, um, they, uh, they had limited opportunities to become part of that people. Um, but I think the North saw something that the South didn't see for something as simple as they were less tempted to it and they were less tempted because of geography. There's a shorter growing season Mm -hmm. in the North. And so it's harder to sustain slaves because you got to feed them. You got to feed them all year. And so it was just less of a temptation. And, and I know. So I asked my students, what sins 
are you incredibly tempted to? I mean, it's easy to judge the sins of other people when you have no temptation of them at all. I'm, I am not tempted to own another person at all. I, I have no temptation. I don't struggle with that ever. But I have other sins that I have temptations. And, and it, I think it's a deep teaching of human nature that, that uh, those with less temptation it can be very judgmental. And those that have the temptation uh, maybe even feel like it's necessary for their very life. Like I think of people that are in um, the situation where they want to abort their child and they feel like this is necessary. This is economically necessary. I don't have a choice. And I think that's how a lot of slave people, I think that's how a lot of Southerners thought about slavery. And there's a lot of Christians on both sides of that issue. And so I just wanted to point that out. Let me let me get to yeah. some of the issue on page 25. The date of the George Floyd uh, death is wrong by a, a little bit over two months. Really? On on page uh, page 25. I don't know if I said that. Right. Page 76. Yeah. The number of Union soldiers is about yeah. twice. Maybe it's hard to know because a lot of them died of disease. Uh, page 45. The date of Washington's letter is before the is it's reported as before july 4th 1776 so it's not clear what new form of government you're talking about there if you look at the footnote the correct date is probably in the footnote um a little bit of ambiguity about what america means i would i would have liked to have more clarity about that on page 42 and 43 uh but that's something that might not be on your radar so it's not that big of a deal page fifth sorry page 80 and 81 the 15th amendment is referred i think referring to the 14th amendment let me look at that really quick uh, yeah page 80 the 15th amendment uh, the then you quote the privileges or immunities clause uh, section one of the 14th amendment Okay, and then same in on page eighty one. There's little things like that, um, but well, Lord, Lord willing, book, if we have a second printing, we will take care of those. That's sadly been the yeah. case with all my fifteen books. You know, after they're out there, you find these mistakes. Somebody yeah, else—that's that's fine. Mistakes, yeah, it's you know. fine. I just want to point out, but I—I so. I really, uh, I really, I know you have limited time today. Maybe it's limited energy with your schedule. I think we've already gone over it. Uh, there's so much here, folks. There's so much here. And I think it's very hard to do this uh, with limited time like this. It's very difficult because these are very sensitive issues. And a lot of it has to do with how people talk and just habits that people have that are bad habits. I, I would sum up the book by saying I think it's a great... Um, uh, clarion call to have greater concern epist epistemolo epistemologically about what's going on in culture. That's why I focused a lot of my comments about the racism definition, because uh, it seems like a lot of, a lot of this is about assessing evidence. And if this is about, if racism is about a belief how did you come to that belief? What kind of evidence are you using? Um, you know, how do you come to your own views about culture? You, uh, Dr. Groteis goes over again and again, 
please think carefully, uh, use logic, use evidence, uh, ground your, your beliefs that you come to with careful thought. And it's very difficult to do that. And so that's why you need good mentors like Dr. Grotice, who have a lot of experience with this material. I mean, you know, you don't want to read Marcuse, you know, uh, you people listening, you probably don't want to read that stuff. You definitely don't want to read Karl Marx because that's murder. But um, we thank you for coming on. Did you want to say anything else or talk about anything else? No, I think we did a pretty good job here, but I... I think it's good for everybody to read the communist manifesto. Oh, really? Well, painful, you know, that's short. Wow. That will give you, I think the basis of Marxism, but you know, he wrote a huge amount of material and a lot of it is pretty painful to read. I mean, how many people have read all the volumes of Das Kapital outside of Thomas Sowell? Uh, I don't know. Okay. So you recommended uh, Gary North on Marxism. Yeah, Marxist uh, communist revolution. Communist Thomas Sowell has a book Thomas on Marxism Soul. also. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Anything by Thomas Sowell is generally pretty good. Um, I surprised you didn't interact a little bit more with um, with the guy from George Mason. He recently died. Um, Doctor um, Economist there. Walter Williams. Walter Walter Williams. Yeah, because yeah, I mentioned him a few times. I put a okay. few notes. He also believes that. Uh, the Great Society was really bad news for African Americans. I think he wrote a book called "The State Against the Blacks." That's right. So yeah, yeah. He, and he talks about he talks about the minimum right. wage a lot in, in South yeah. Africa, right? And uh, you talked that. about that too, so I that did. might have been what you were referring to. But there, the, uh, the for that reason alone, getting people interested in in Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams and others uh, who were highly appropriately critical of the movements in I would say starting in the Great Depression uh, with the uh, with the New Deal, but then uh, I think yeah. growing naturally into the uh, the Great Society with Lyndon Johnson. I think that's that's rich ref- material for reflection for Christians, and I'm glad that you're at the seminary doing this work um, because I don't really. I mean, if you just look at seminaries, I I don't I'm not you know, up to speed on everything, obviously, but, um, I think you're pretty much alone doing this kind of work. Would you say that's fair or? I don't really know. You mean among Christian philosophers at some, um, not necessarily in the philosophy department, but just, I mean, I haven't seen anybody talking about 2020 from seminaries, uh, in a book form. And of course, it's know. only two years later. But. Yeah, I don't know, really. There aren't a whole yeah. lot of uh, politically conservative evangelical philosophers who write books oh. about their convictions. I think I'm safe to say that. Okay. So. Why do you think that is? I don't know. <laughs> they haven't read the right books. <laughs> they haven't read Thomas Sowell. You know, that's part of the problem. I talked to a theologian. Actually, he was a church historian about 25 years ago who was very liberal and uh, uh, he brought up something. And I said, have you read Thomas Sowell on that? And he goes, Thomas Sowell, he's a conservative. Yeah. Uh, You might want to look at his arguments. 
Last night, I sat down and read several articles in the New Yorker. You know, I the New Yorker is not exactly conservative. Right. I read an article in Newsweek for arguing for reparations. Churches should engage in reparations. You know, may the best argument win. I'm not a conservative because somebody told me you have to be a conservative. I think it makes sense. Do you know how many times I've had or heard people say that the school I went to was conservative or right wing? And what they mean by that is they can name one or two people there that have what they consider those views. And all the schools I've taught at, like, you know, I've taught at 12 schools. Most of them government schools where I was the only Republican faculty that I knew besides maybe one or two people that were kind of in the closet. And there are probably others that I didn't know about, but, but I've never heard Cal State Northridge, for example, referred to as a left wing school. I've never heard it. They don't, they, they're, if if something is Republican, it's it's derided as right wing or conservative and it's taken to be that's just we're just describing because we're concerned with describing. But then they won't describe the left wing schools as left wing at all. And uh, like you mentioned in the book, when Ben Shapiro went to UC Berkeley, there there was violence. There was a threat of death and murder. And I've never seen that at a so-called Republican school. I've never seen that kind of violence anywhere near these other schools. And by the way, when we let's let's get clear about what we mean by Republican school. Uh, I went to Claremont and someone said, that's a that's a that's a that's a conservative school. I said, well, what do you mean by that? Well, it's they didn't even know. And, and I said, there's one professor that worked for Ronald Reagan there. And at one of the six colleges, 41 of them are Republican out of 140 professors. And at the other schools, zero, zero <laughs> Republicans, zero. Mm-hmm. And it's not described as left wing. Mm-hmm. And that, that's that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with people yeah. that say stupid things and they don't critically think about what they're saying. And it's oftentimes biased and it's oftentimes unfair. And that's just what we're dealing with. And so it gets me upset, <laughs> as you can probably tell. Well, I, I try to deal with the issues and the arguments and the history and the theology of all this. And I certainly come out conservative, but uh, since I'm on the Republican Professor podcast, I should say I'm actually I'm actually unaffiliated. Yeah, I'm. Uh, you mean you're not a professor, or you're not a Republican? I'm not a Republican. <laughs> to my knowledge, I'm still a professor at Denver Seminary. But after this podcast, who knows? Mm. Right. But the issue is. Um, well, they have a podcast. Are they going to invite you on to talk about the book? I, never mind. I was on recently on my other new book. What's but, your other what's your other book? Oh, the second edition of Christian Apologetics. Oh. Yeah. I haven't heard that one yet. I'll have to check it out. I, I follow have, that. I follow that podcast. I don't have to have it around to hold it up. But let me just say one thing about how the left works in evangelicalism. And I've seen okay. this literally for 45 years <clears throat> because I used to read Ron Sider, Jim Wallace, Sojourner's yeah. magazine. Sure, yeah. yeah. That, right. Yeah, yeah. So what they'll say is 
that we are prophetic and biblical and we are not captivated by politics, right? But anyone who's conservative is an ideologue. They're captivated by the Republican party and they are an image problem for evangelicalism. That's the way it works. So if you're on the left, you never really say you're on the left. You're just prophetic and biblical and care about the poor and the oppressed. If you're conservative and a Christian evangelical, your mind has been polluted and captivated by conservatism. And now the big phrase is white nationalism. So if you didn't vote for Joe Biden, you're a white nationalist. And of course, white nationalist is horrible and it's racist and it's white supremacist. And so many Christians being white supremacists and, and nationalists is of course bad for the gospel. We're pushing people away from Christianity. That whole view is so wrong in so many ways. I mean, we'd have to do a whole show on this, but suffice to say that if you're a Christian and you have political views, <clears throat> you need to relate it to the Bible and you need to relate it to good history and good political science. And don't say that you float free of politics and you're just a prophet. No, we have <laughs> political views <laughs> and let's defend them by scripture and logic and history and may the best argument win. But I'm so tired of people saying, oh, we're just wanting to present the gospel and the gospel has been contaminated by conservative politics. But of course we are just completely apolitical, neither left nor right. And I'll give you a principle for political analysis I've learned in the last 45 years. If anyone says they're neither left nor right, they're left. Yeah. Every single time. Sure, yeah. Every single time. Yeah, it's just like when the Los Angeles Times will refer to Biola University and they'll say it's it's uh, it's right wing or conservative as opposed to what, as opposed to all the left wing schools and that entirely surround it by the way that are paid for by tax money. Right. I mean, you know, so are we really what do we a lot of this is what do these words even mean? I don't even know what conservative means. I don't know what right means. I don't know what left means. I mean, I have an idea because I have a Ph.D. in this stuff, but. You have to think you have to think a little bit about this stuff. But yeah. but I think a lot what I mean by that is when people use those terms, I'm not sure what they mean by them. And mm -hmm. I and a lot of that reason is, is I don't think they know what they mean by them. I know you do because you think about the stuff. You're a philosopher and you're constantly defining terms in your mind. But when you talk to just kind of uh, people that are not in in this stuff all the time. I, I don't think they really think about that stuff. What does it mean to be conservative? What does it mean to be right wing versus left wing? I don't, you know, what is that? What is, why do you use the word left and right? <laughs> why, mm -hmm. why don't you say right and wrong? I don't, you know, I mean, so I Up think what down. you're saying, <laughs> I think what you're saying is let's get back to right and wrong. Let's get back to well-founded versus unfounded. Let's get back to epistemological, just, you know, categories you know does this have good evidence what's the evidence for it let's talk about that and why why do we feel like we have to constantly um supply a label that supplants dialogue rather than as an invitation to dialogue yeah well i think a lot of our setup for media is based on impatience and yeah, sound yeah. bites and you talk about that in the book you talk yeah. about yeah. having a shortened attention span. And I see that on campus a lot. Do you see that on campus? Shortened attention span? Well, uh, not so much at Denver Seminary because we have That's graduate good. students that I think are more committed to learning. 
Okay, that's good. But I think our basic structures of communication are biased towards oversimplification and ideological thinking. Yeah. Definitely. So instead of having a well-thought-out worldview and political philosophy, you just have an ideology. Yeah, stuff that you think you're supposed to say. (laughs) Yeah, so one example I give in the book, if you find out that an unarmed black male was killed by a white police officer, you just know instantly that it's systemic racism at work again. And you know that this happens disproportionately. Well, if you actually read Heather McDonald, um, uh, what is the name of her book? Uh, The War on Cops. Or if you read Wilford Riley, his book, uh, Hate Crime Hoax, Mm -hmm. you see the numbers don't add up. Now there are racially motivated police instances of police brutality sure but is it a systemic problem such that any time an unarmed black man is killed by a white officer like michael brown that it's it's racism no you've got to do some background work on all this thing derek chauvin was never accused at least when i wrote the book of having any racial motivation the issue is whether he broke the law right he, he intentionally or unintentionally uh killed George Floyd. And I quote that in the book. They said, we weren't looking for racial motivation, but the whole world was, you know, we saw that video and instantly given the narrative or given the ideology is a better word of critical race theory and systemic racism, we instantly know everything that happened. No, you don't. (laughs) So (laughs) let's be a little more patient, a little more measured. And you can be what I call an ideological thinker on the right or the left. You know, you can just let wow. the story explain everything without looking at the facts on the ground. What happened in this case? What is the background story? Um, but yeah. our society wants tweets, sound bites, talking points. Which side are you on? And, you know, we're philosophers and not everybody's going to be a philosopher. I mean, it's a good way to be unemployed for a lot of folks, but we all need to be critical thinkers. And that's what I'm trying to get people to do in this book. As much as present a viewpoint, which I certainly do. Um, yeah, I, I think it. you have to, because otherwise yeah. it's just, yeah. it's not. I think it's good to just say what, where you're coming from <clears throat> and let people sort it out on their own and just say, hey, the, the, I, you know, the the police brutality stuff, I think is, there's a wider context for that in terms of government versus the individual. Read just just Google Sackett versus EPA and read that. Read the actual text. Hmm. It, it, that's what I do with my business ethics and public policy students. Is you know because they're getting into this stuff. You're getting into the regulatory agencies. You know, as a family in Idaho, I believe it was they they wanted to fill in a their backyard a bit. Some of the stuff they filled in went into a puddle. When it rains, there's a puddle there. And it was a puddle. The puddle drains into a navigable stream, which is regulated by the federal government. And they were accused of polluting. They they had fines of tens of thousands of dollars per day. This is just a normal family. Yeah, yeah. And you, you don't have riots about that. Right. You have the incredible power of the of the government just crushing 
this family, much like the police officer was of of uh, George Floyd. But you can't put it on a billboard. And and to the great credit of the Democrats on the court, it was nine zero. Even though it was an Obama administration um, defense, I mean, it, it was it was uh, it, it. That's why I use it is because it was nine zero, and 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 even the Democrats were able to see the problem there. And I see a lot of the Democrats that I know they see the problem with the power of the government versus the individual. They do see it. But then they don't keep the thought going. <laughs> they don't they don't they don't stay with that theme. OK, hold on. Hold on. We, people have rights. People have individual rights. What are those rights? The government always takes itself to be doing the right thing. The, the government never says, well, hold on a second. Are we doing the right thing? And oftentimes they'll throw millions of dollars at it, just like they did with the Sackets to defend the suit. And then they're wrong. Nine zip, they're wrong. What a waste of taxpayer money. And then who has to pay that? The ironic thing is that the people, that the victims here are the taxpayers. <laughs> I mean, even if, even if they win a settlement, that settlement's going to come out of their own tax money. And so, so it's just an incredibly abusive thing. And so I, I appreciate your approach here, getting us thinking about these, these incredibly complex issues from a Christian point of view. And I really appreciated the specifics from the Christian worldview as you went through, for example, you quote Jesus, you, you interact with the old Testament and you're constantly drawing us to these deeper sources in our, our ancient history mm-hmm. to get us to have a, a wider context, a metaphysical context of who we are and how we relate to each other and how we relate to the government and how we relate to God. And I, I don't think we can ever get enough of that. Well, I agree. <laughs> I've, I've been defending Christianity for 46 years and I'm not going to stop. I will do it in any way that I possibly can in whatever setting I can. And I hope with integrity. I think that the Christian understanding of who we are as human beings is vitally significant for the racial and political issues that we face today. The book again is called Fire in the Streets, How You Can Confidently Respond to Incendiary Cultural Topics by Douglas R. Grotice. And it it, it looks like it's Gruth who is that <laughs> it is grotice and we're he's a former professor of mine excellent professor of philosophy at denver seminary thanks for joining us okay. well you're welcome thanks much